I'm Jonathan Bastian, and this is KCRW's Life Examined, a show about science, philosophy, faith, and finding meaning in the modern-day world. For thousands of years, different cultures have used breathing techniques to cultivate a healthy mind and body. I'll talk with author James Nestor about some of the ancient practices and how we can rediscover them in our everyday lives. Breathing is something we carry with ourselves all day long and all night long. So you can practice healthy breathing methods on the couch, in bed, and those benefits of healthy breathing are huge. Later, we'll hear how this can help with everything from performance, anxiety, and stress to diving hundreds of feet underwater. Focus on the exhale, (sighs) letting go, you know, like the the sigh. We all have this in all cultures across all religions, you know, a sigh is a sigh. The breath, science, and rediscovering the lost art of breathing, all ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. (sighs) Breathing. It's the body's only autonomic function we can actually control. And on average, we take about 25,000 breaths a day. So it's easy to take this action for granted. But author James Nestor thinks we shouldn't. He says poor breathing habits can literally change the structure of our face and exacerbate a range of chronic ailments from hypertension, asthma, and fatigue. To fix this, Nestor says we need to look to the past and learn how Buddhists, Hindus, Native Americans, and others refined different breathing techniques to live healthier lives. James Nestor is the author of a new book, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art, and he joins me now. Welcome. Thanks a lot for having me. Let's jump into the book here um, because it kind of starts with a story of your health and this unexpected um, kind of journey you would take into the history of breathing. But l- let's just start with what you were going through and kind of what what took you into this subject. Yeah, so this was several years ago, um, and I had been, you know, eating the right foods and exercising a lot, but I kept having these chronic respiratory problems. I was getting bronchitis all the time, which was turning into mild pneumonia uh, year after year, and my doctor finally suggested I check out a breathing class. Hmm. And I did that. Um, I just found one online. It looked good enough. And I remember a week after this introductory course, going into this room with these other people and just taking a seat, crossing my legs and breathing in this very rhythmic pattern. Nothing special. Wasn't pushing it too hard. And sweat just started pouring out of me um, all over my, my hair was sopping wet. My t-shirt was wet. I mean, it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. And other people in the class saw it. They said, hey, are you okay? And uh, I felt great, but I went back to my doctor and I said, this very weird experience happened. Uh, Can you explain it? And, you know, she said that I must've had a fever or the room Mm. was too hot or was wearing too many clothes. None of those things were true. She had no idea. So as a science journalist, I didn't know what to do with that experience. So I just sort of, sort of filed it away and until years later, I met free divers who were help able to give context to the real power of breathing, how it could not only elicit extreme heat in the body, but how you could use it to actually heal yourself and do some other miraculous things. Yeah, I mean, you, you really write about how, how that, that experience was kind of inexplicable and and you looked for looked for reasons you looked for the whys but i don't know can you say more about kind of what what happened to you in that moment and how transformative it was it was inexplicable but i learned later completely common Mm. so this happens to so many people and nobody really could could understand it or or provide me with a good enough answer for it my father-in-law is a pulmonologist my brother-in-law is an er doctor and they said, hmm, that's weird. Anyway, back to work, <laughs> you know, because right. it's, it was outside of there. They didn't deny it happened. I mean, there were people that were there who had seen it. And I've talked to other people who have had the same exact experience. So, you know, um, it's a bit hard to, to explain um, uh, beyond the fact that it was just imagine sitting in a room, closing your eyes, breathing in a, in a certain way, which was somewhat hypnotic, following with this pattern, really sort of giving yourself over to it. And then without even knowing that it was happening, uh, sort of snapping out of it, coming, coming to and noticing there was just sweat covering everything. I mean, this wasn't even like sweat from 
running a marathon. It was some other kind of sweat. Mm. And so once I started understanding that building heat in the body through breath is something that has been done for thousands of years and that it's been studied by Harvard researchers and that people have been doing this with sensors all over their bodies and it's been absolutely proven. It gave me as a journalist a little more comfort that this wasn't too far out there, that it was being studied, it was being taken you know, very seriously by researchers, and it was proven that it happened. Well, let's get to the science in a little bit. But I, one thing I loved about this book was kind of looking at how th- this kind of mystical angle of breathing has showed up in texts for for thousands of years. Um, and, and you go through some of the traditions, but um, we think of of breathing, for example, being very tied to yoga. So that would go back to mm-hmm. early uh, roots in Hinduism. W- where do you start to see kind of some of the first writing in the Hindu tradition show up in some of the texts? So the history of conscious breathing is dated to about 5,000 years ago to the wow. Indus civilization. And the anthropologists who look at this stuff had found these little statuettes from the Indus civilization in which these people were in these very obvious and purposeful poses, breathing. Their stomachs were extended, their chests were up, their hands were out. Some people might consider these uh, asanas or or certain yoga poses from Mm. which they were later adapted. So uh, in the Rig Veda, which is uh, what, 1500 BC, uh, you start to start getting information about breathing, breathing methods. That's where pranayama is first originates. And then after that, it really comes to the four yoga sutras of Panchanjali and, you know, about 2,000 years ago. Um, what, what's interesting is it does look like it originated in ancient Hindu texts, but the Chinese were onto this stuff. Uh, thousands of years ago. And when you start really digging through the literature, which which I did, I spent months and months looking through this, they were finding the same exact things in these different cultures. And, you know, I don't think that they had, there was too much cross-pollination between them, and yet they were finding certain exercises could have a huge benefit to the body, and certain breathing practices in another way could be really deleterious to our health. Interesting. So, I mean, we do see it in, in early China as well, but staying with Hinduism for a second, I mean, there was mm-hmm. all, there was this sense that it was tied to something deeper. It was tied to a soul or something. Is that correct? Yeah, they, they understood breathing as, as energy, as prana. It wasn't so much molecules of, of oxygen and getting rid of CO2. It was prana. It was energy. And so you, you look at the Chinese and, and they talk about qi, which, which means energy. So those, those words for, for the spirit and breath are synonymous. And they're synonymous in Greek and in early Hebrew texts. And so this kept happening in these early cultures is is the spirit and energy and breath were all the same thing. Right, which is something I think we've totally lost track of. We just think of it as a kind of a, a rote thing we kind of get through throughout the day. Um, nothing, nothing quite special about it anymore, right? Unless you really start focusing on it. You know, uh, the Hindus had this whole philosophy. I, I'd even call it a technology of prana how it worked in the body, how it released energy, how it released toxins, how you could use breathing in different ways to stimulate different mental states, different physical states. And what's interesting to me is you see what's happening in breathing in modern science now. We have all these machines to measure this stuff, and we're finding the same exact thing. Mm. We're just calling it different things. We're calling it electrons, and we're calling it oxygen, and we're, you know, but, but the the fundamentals of those two systems are so similar. And this is what I've heard from researchers in the field. This wasn't some theory I made up. They are so similar when you look at them side by side. And walk us through kind of what 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 that looks like, what the style of breathing, the kind of the healthful style of breathing looks like going back to some of these ancient traditions. Well, I think you have to start with, if you're looking at early Hindu traditions, Yoga was a technology of breathing. There was no movement. There were no poses, no standing poses in the earliest forms of yoga. 
vinyasa flow, which everyone's doing at every gym. Well, now that we're not going to gyms, everyone's right. doing in their living rooms nowadays. That's 100 years old. So, so the earliest yoga was about sitting, being mindful, and breathing. So in those practices, they're, they're very arcane. Uh, it's really hard to figure out exactly what they're doing. They were never specific, like take your lips and breathe in to a count of three, and then exhale to a count of seven. Um, they, they were saying things like, you know, the breath is like the ocean, and then you take the ocean into your body, and then you release the ocean out into the world. But it wasn't until the, the Yoga Sutras of Panchanjali that about 2,000 years ago where that stuff was was codified and the instructions were made very clear and and a lot of this is about breathing more breathing more intensely to gain energy to gain that prana in your body and calming down your breathing to bring a calmness over you Mm. We also start to see this show up um, in Buddhist texts as well. I mean, you you talk about something called tumo breathing. How does that work? So this is where I thought this was so interesting because they were all finding these same technologies of breathing in these very disparate areas of the world. And so tumo breathing could have come from early pranayama breathing, this really vigorous pranayama breathing, which is usually done through the nose, and it's people who who have done yoga know all about this. (laughs) You breathe very heavy, and then you breathe very softly, and then you breathe very heavy, and then you breathe very softly. So early Buddhists, about 2,000 years ago, have been using, at least 2,000 years ago, have been using a system of breathing to heat their bodies up. And this had been people who had traveled to, to China, to areas of Tibet, would come back with these stories of saying these monks were able to sit out in the snow overnight, melt a circle around themselves, get up and go back into the monastery and be perfectly fine, which sounds ridiculous, right? No one would believe that until Herbert Benson of, of Harvard Medical School went out there to Dharamsala in the 1980s and found these monks and found that they could do exactly that. So they could raise the temperature in their fingers by 17 degrees. They could dry wet sheets in a cold room with just their body heat. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So, so much of this had been written about, but we didn't have the measurements to prove it. And so nobody in the West wanted to really believe it. And that's what I think is so fascinating about having this modern medical technology to be able to really peer into what happens to the body when we breathe in different ways. Yeah, I mean, if we if we stay with the kind of tumo breathing, how would scientists explain the fact that somebody can sit in the middle of a snowy field and melt the snow around them? So this is one thing. Um, I This is a question I had uh, for years. I was trying to find it. And the quick answer is they still don't exactly no. So there are still mysteries to the breath and to the body, which I think is fantastic. It really frustrates the researchers, (laughs) but I I think that they're going to figure it out one day. But there are two different ways of doing TUMO, and this is where it gets even stranger. So the monks practice this method that is very soft. It's more based on mental focus and breathing in this pace pattern, moving your stomach as you breathe in, extending it, then contracting it with each breath. And Benson found that just by breathing in this way, these monks were able to decrease their metabolism by 60%, which is the lowest number anyone has ever seen. But then there's this other side of TUMO in which you really go for it. A Wim Hof method, he's quite famous now, uses this other form that stimulates the sympathetic nervous system. So it purposely causes stress in your body, but it does the same thing. Both these people using these different practices can sit in ice. Wim has sat in ice for two hours, breathed in a certain way. His core temperature didn't go down, didn't get hypothermia, didn't get frostbite. And scientists are still scratching their heads saying, how is this possible? Mm. Yeah, Wim Hof is kind of another really interesting character in this. Um, somebody who kind of has produced these these incredible feats that that are very difficult to explain. Just just a, a few seconds. I mean, what, how has he kind of added to this this knowledge of breathing? Wim is very clear that he didn't create anything. Mm-hmm. What he did was he gathered up these ancient breathing practices 
and put them, was able to produce them in such a way and announce them to people in a way that, that was approachable and accessible. So reading these ancient yoga scripts is really difficult, right? They're, yeah. they're, they're really abstract. Um, you don't know exactly what they're saying. So he was able, he's been a great student of yoga and of pranayama, was able to take some practices. And the great thing about Wim is no one would believe that the human body could do any of this stuff if he hadn't gone and volunteered himself to go into labs and be injected with E. coli and breathe in a certain way where his body fought off the E. coli. And then he brought in other people after a week of training who could do the same exact thing. So we now know scientifically that it's possible for the body to do this. And we're able to do this by breathing in certain ways. Now, to me, what's kind of so interesting about this whole conversation is that from an evolutionary perspective, you have said that humans are kind of becoming really, really bad at breathing, right? Well, like our, our body is moving in the wrong direction than being healthful breathing. So what's happening there? When I first heard this from a scientist, I didn't believe it. And then I looked at the data. If you look at a quarter of the population suffers from sleep apnea, yeah. half of us snore. Um, 10% of Americans have asthma, 10% have COPD. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And the rest of us have some sort of breathing dysfunction, which seems crazy because you're like, I've been you know, alive for a long time. I think I've been breathing just fine. Yeah. But just being alive is, the different, is different from being healthy and really prospering. So what, what's happened to the human face and the human mouth specifically is it's been shrinking. And we've been changing since as long as we've been here for millions of years. We've been constantly changing, but that change has happened very slow. This change that has happened to our mouths has happened very fast in the past around 300, 400 years. It's gotten so bad that our teeth no longer fit in our mouths. They mm. grow in crooked. We have to have teeth yanked out. We have to have wisdom teeth taken out. You think it's so common now that no one really asks, well, why do humans have crooked teeth? When you look at any wild animal, perfectly straight teeth. <laughs> if right. you look at any of our ancestors, perfectly straight teeth. But human, 90% of us have crooked teeth because our mouths are too small. And the other problem with having a mouth too small for your face is you have a smaller airway, which is one of the main reasons that we have so many of these chronic breathing problems. We're having trouble just getting air in and out of ourselves, which is just wild, but it's true. Is there any sense of why our mouths are shrinking and our, and our I believe, kind of our nasal passages as well? It's a very clear sense. It's because when our food switched from wild whole foods that required a ton of chewing, our ancestors used to chew for about four hours a day. When you're chewing that much, you are building bone mass, you are building musculature in the face, and you are building a wider mouth. With the advent of industrialized foods, you think about uh, introduction of white flour, white rice, canned foods, everything soft. Even if you think about what you had today, um, even what's considered healthy foods, smoothies, avocados, yogurt, mm -hmm. go-gurt, <laughs> yeah, you know, on, on and on. All this stuff is soft, and humans did not evolve to be eating soft foods. And because of that, our mouths have shrunk, and there's a huge amount of science and studies showing this. There are some other elements, um, oral posture. What I mean by that is in very polluted environments, adenoids and tonsils uh, can become inflamed, and you start breathing from your mouth which also causes damage, uh, will actually change the skeletature of your face when you're young. Is there anything I, that we can do about this? I mean, should we be going back to like more hunter-gatherer diets to, <laughs> to keep our jaws strong? What, what do you think? <laughs> well, when you're young, that's when you really want to do something about it. So they've done studies where they found infants who have been breastfed versus those who have been bottle-fed. The breastfed infants will have less of a chance of having snoring and sleep apnea because when you're breastfed, you know, every two hours, it requires a tremendous amount of effort and it helps push the face outward mm. and it builds a larger airway. 
So when you're young, you know, maybe when you're four and five to start actually chewing food, um, to get away from having everything processed. Chewing is, it has so many benefits. And one of the main benefits is it can change the way your face looks and it can change your airways. In adulthood, it's a lot harder because once I heard this, I said, oh my God, you know, I had extractions, I had braces, I had headgear, yeah. I had breathing problems, I had all that stuff. Me and everyone else I, I know had the same thing. But there are ways to improve it. Um, and over the course of a year, I, could, I took a CAT scan before and after to see how an adult could improve his airway. And I found that I opened mine up about 15 to 20%, which is an enormous amount. Uh, and I'm breathing so much better now than I ever have been able to. I did this by doing oral pharyngeal exercises. The mm. tongue's a powerful muscle. And if you work it out, you can help tone the airway, open up the airway. There's a clear foundation of science on that. I did it through chewing and I did it through expanding the upper palate of my mouth. Yeah, you. I think did you at one point say that like chewing gum, things like that are just actually quite helpful for us? Chewing has so many advantages. It is so beneficial. But if you have TMJ issues, it can it can cause further damage. So yeah. for those who don't, so I just want to make this, this yeah. disclaimer. <laughs> for those who, who, who don't, it can be very beneficial. It can tone your airway. It can help you breathe easier. Yeah. Well, we've been talking a lot about the shrinking of the mouth, but, but I think a lot of your book emphasizes something really simple, which is that we should be breathing primarily through our noses. Is, isn't that really big here? Yeah. And if you look back in the literature from ancient Hindu literature, um, ancient Chinese literature, there are seven books of the Tao that talk about breathing. And they talk about all the benefits of nasal breathing and all the problems associated with mouth breathing. Um, and it's, this is, again, is one of those fascinating things that modern science has, has really shown what the ancients knew was, was to be hundred percent right. So when you breathe through the nose, you are pressurizing air, you're humidifying it, mm. you are filtering it. So by the time that air gets to your lungs, it is conditioned and can be absorbed so much more easily. The lungs, you can almost think about them as an external organ because they're exposed to your entire environment. If you live in a city like I do, you don't want them to be bare and exposed to everything. You want the breath to meet them, to, to be very filtered. And that's what the nose does. If you breathe through your mouth, you get none of those benefits. So hmm. just, just breathing through the nose, you get an increase of about 20% more oxygen than the equivalent mouth breaths, which is a huge amount throughout the day. 20% more oxygen just by breathing through That's, your nose. That is exactly right. And it has to do with the pressure, the amount of time it takes for air to go in and out. The more time you have, the more time your lungs have to extract oxygen. And it also has to do with this amazing molecule called nitric oxide, which plays an essential role in vasodilation and gas exchange. We make six times more nitric oxide in our noses than we do breathing through our mouths. And what does that do for us ultimately? <laughs> so uh, it does many things. Uh, it's no coincidence that they are now, there are 14 different studies, I believe right now, they are using nitric oxide to treat patients with COVID because it has such an amazing effect. It interacts directly with pathogens, with viruses. So uh, Louis Ignaro, who won the Nobel Prize in the 90s, believes that just breathing through the nose can help defend ourselves from viruses and perhaps even COVID. That, that's not my opinion. That's, that's his opinion, and, and he knows his stuff. So I should also mention that nitric oxide is the molecule that is released when someone takes Viagra. So Jeez. nitric oxide is such a fantastic vasodilator, has such a profound effect on our bodies that it can bring circulation um, throughout our bodies in, in wondrous ways. Are there ways to kind of get better at that nasal breathing? Because I know so many people have crazy allergies. They may need nasal surgeries, but, but what, what can you really do about that? Well, some people absolutely need surgical interventions. If they've broken their nose several times, if they can't breathe out of one nostril or the other, but what 
what I've found from, from talking about talking to the experts in the field and talking about this stuff for, for years is that the vast majority of us can use our noses in way and, and, and use our sinuses in the way that they are now and really help expand them and optimize them. And we can do that by forcing ourselves to breathe through our noses all the time. I, I took a CAT scan down at Stanford and the rhinologist down there, Dr. Jayakar Nayak, said that I was a perfect candidate for nasal surgery because mm. I'm completely messed up. You know, 75% of the population has a deviated septum. And mine is severely, I've broken my nose three or four times. But then I talked to a breathing therapist at Stanford who said she had the same exact thing. But then she focused on breathing through her nose. And she said that the nose is really like a use it or, or lose it organ. So the more we use it, the more it's going to open, the more we're going to be able to adapt to it. And the benefits of nasal breathing, I got into a few of them, are are profound. And she was able to open up her clogged nose. She was a habitual mouth breather by just focusing on breathing through her mouth. Humming helps too. This sounds weird, but if you close your nostrils, if you have a stuffed nose and you hum, you can increase nitric oxide 15-fold, which helps open up your nose. You know, one thing I think I'm I'm hearing in all of this is that like meditation, like yoga, it takes practice, this stuff. I mean, it takes some kind of a conscious awareness that we need to make uh, changes in just these daily patterns. And, and I hear kind of that's a bit of the process you went through in this book. It does take practice, but I think that the difference with breathing is when someone tells you to change your diet and says, okay, you need to go keto now you need to go paleo you need to go vegan that's a huge shift in your lifestyle when someone says you now need to walk five miles a day another huge shift breathing is something we carry with ourselves all day long and all night long so you can practice healthy breathing methods on the couch in bed while watching you know tiger king whatever you you can do it at at any time and those benefits of healthy breathing are huge we're seeing that mental and physical benefits of breathing this way so the the first thing that i found the most important thing is just to become aware of your breath don't take it for granted and we're seeing this with covid when you lose the ability to breathe properly so many bad things will happen once you become aware then you can start developing healthy habits. Yeah, when and I think about this moment, as you mentioned now, as as COVID is still upon us and we're just wearing these masks, which make it harder to breathe anyway. How does this research kind of, I don't know, align with what's going on right now? I mean, what advice would you have for those of us listening to? I think the one silver lining to this foul pandemic is that it has made us acutely aware of our breathing of what happens when we lose that ability and how transformative it can be when when we get it back. So mass breathing is not a pleasant thing, but take it as an opportunity to breathe slower, to breathe less, and to breathe through your nose. Those three things can have a massive effect on your health, and we know that most of us breathe too much. And this idea where people are saying, I can't get enough breath through the mask, I'm not getting enough oxygen. That's been pretty much debunked. And if you have a pulse oximeter, which a lot of people do nowadays, you can just put that on your finger and breathe through your mask and see what's happening to your blood sets. So that need to breathe when you when you hold your breath, that isn't caused by a lack of oxygen. It's caused by an increase of carbon dioxide. That's what triggers our need to breathe. And most of us can benefit from having more CO2 in our bloodstreams. I know that seems contradictory to a lot of what we're hearing uh, about CO2 in the atmosphere and global warming, which is 100% true, but you need a balance of CO2 and oxygen in your body for it to work properly. Thinking about your book and, and maybe some of the journeys and the travels that you've taken, are there any kind of people you met or vignettes that stick out in your mind that really rubbed off on you? I think the one that I found that was so so strange and yet so interesting was there is a researcher named DeRose um, down in Brazil. And this guy spent 30 years traveling from Brazil 
to India and back again to dig up this history of yoga, of what yoga really was. And talking to him and learning so much about how important breathing is in the yoga practice. And the yoga practice as well, you know, it's not about just doing 30 minutes on a mat. You're supposed to carry this with you throughout the day. That's where you really get the benefits from it. So to me, it's fascinating that humans have known this stuff for thousands of years. There have been so many empirical studies, and that's what's in ancient Hindu texts and ancient Chinese texts. And it seems so simple, breathing does. And yet, once you do it properly, you can really see how transformative it is. And we know this because we can now measure it. And if we can measure breathing, we can study it. If we can study it, we can really see all of its benefits. And that's what we're doing now. So it's it's fascinating that this stuff isn't really new. I call it the lost art, but I think we found it again. And hopefully this time we won't lose it again. James Nestor is a journalist and author of Breath, the new science of a lost art. Uh, we appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us on KCRW. Thanks very much for having me. Still to come, we'll hear from a free diver and a breath practitioner about the mechanics of breathing well and the impacts on our mental and physical well-being. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We're continuing our discussion about the human breath and the impacts focused breathing can have on our minds and bodies. James Nestor explained the spiritual origins of breath work and what science is telling us about these practices. Now, to learn more about the mechanics of inhaling in and out, we'll hear from two experienced breath practitioners. Stieg Severinsen has a PhD in medicine and is a four-time world champion freediver. He's also the author of Breathology, The Art of Conscious Breathing. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Happy to be here. And Annalise Richmond is the director of Sky Campus Happiness Program and director of teacher training for the Art of Living Foundation. Her work with breath-based meditation has been successfully used with college students who suffer from suicidal thoughts, stress, and anxiety. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Stieg, I, I, I've always been so intrigued um, about the connection between breath and freediving. I mean, the videos you see are incredible, people going down for multiple minutes. Can you just tell us a little bit about um, about what it takes to work with the breath in such an intimate way um, to, to produce those incredible results? I mean, as I mentioned, a four-time freediving world champion. Give us some background into that. For any child, I think once they start free diving and explore uh, the the dimensions under the, the surface uh, of the oceans or even in a swimming pool, you pretty quickly realize that in order to be able to stay down, you need to be relaxed. So that's a very important factor. Uh, so mental relaxation, physiological uh, relaxation. But then you quickly also realize that you need to understand breathing better. So as a child, you subconsciously train a lot of different breathing techniques and styles and you experiment, as children always do, and you kind of find your own way. And, and then when you get more and more into competitive freediving, then you start to realize that most of your focus is actually on breathing and the preparation, because the way you breathe is the way you live and the way you feel and the way you perform. So if you don't really understand breathing and do it properly before the dive, uh, you already kind of have a bad start, if that makes sense. So, mm -hmm. so it sounds like kind of a paradox, right? That you you're a free diver, you hold your breath, you're, you're working with breathing, <laughs> so, uh, but you're holding your breath. But they go hand in hand. I, I look at it as a brother and a sister, and that is why I think also we see so many people starting in free diving now and spear fishing and snorkeling because they want to connect with nature and themselves. 
and with the breath pause, uh, we can get much more into this, but in yoga, it's the part of yoga, the fourth element of Ashtanga yoga, which are like eight elements to enlightenment, but the fourth limb or the fourth step is called pranayama. And you can say that's the secret or the forgotten art of, 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 of um, yoga, and that deals with breathing and particularly the breath holding or the breath pause. Hmm. So we can dive much more into that, but that's what freediving is, investigating the pause in the breath. How much training does it take to become a great freediver? Well, it, it kind of depends. Actually, once you get older, your, metabol your metabolism goes down. So that is an advantage. Whereas in practically any other sport, you know, once you get older, you lose your, your stamina and your muscles and, and your coordination and balance um, as you had in your youth. Uh, but in freediving, it's actually an advantage. And... Um, and you also have a, a lifelong experience to look back on and to lean against. So, so I would say, you know, with, with decent freediving uh, a few times a week, and then, of course, you start to doing the cardiovascular workout and the apnea training, the breath training, hypoxic training, all the kind of crazy stuff that I do with the Navy SEALs and the Royal Air Force and the Olympian athletes. But for an average person, the great thing about freediving, first of all, the first rule of any diving is never dive alone. So never hold your breath alone in water because you can black out and drown. That's obviously very dangerous. But if you ex experiment at home, in your bed, on the couch, on your yoga mat, it's super safe. And you go into all these crevices of your mind and your body and your neurophysiology, your anatomy. It's, it's extraordinary. Uh, and this journey, everyone can go on. And the, the wonderful thing about freediving is that the learning curve is, is, is it's an incredible thing to see people after one, two, three introductory dives doubling or tripling the performance mm. there are not many things in life where you can double or triple you know think about running or weightlifting if you could triple the weight you could lift that would be amazing in a week so it takes of course uh, dedication and and patience but 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 people that start and are passionate they learn very quickly yeah Annalie richmond uh, tell us where kind of your interest in the breath began because uh, you work with it in a multiple of ways and and have seen a lot of results um, in, in kind of your work in the mental health space, but in a lot of other ways. So wh where does your interest start from? Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. So yeah, I run a program called Sky Campus Happiness, which we have on 58 universities in the U.S. And I got into this 22 years ago in New York City when I was a professional ballerina hmm. for 15 years with the Metropolitan Opera Ballet. And um, I used to experience lots of stage anxiety. I would walk onto stage and you know at the Met there's 5,000 people in front of you right. and I would have so much anxiety I wouldn't perform as well and that was probably the worst part of my career and I just happened to walk into an art of living course a weekend course that taught me sky breath meditation it's, it's a breath-based meditation practice and I had no idea what I was walking into uh, it I had been exploring meditation but th this was the deepest by far and the most effective by far and I practiced it for about two weeks, and then I walked onto stage one night, and there was just zero anxiety all of a sudden. Wow. And I thought, this is phenomenal. Like, what happened to my stage anxiety that had been plaguing me for about eight or nine years? So I vowed I would learn to teach this to others. Right. <laughs> and when I retired from dance, um, I started this program um, 10 years ago, for specifically for university student populations. Because the anxiety, I mean, I mean, all of us right now, right, are, are dealing with anxiety and depression or social isolation because of COVID, the lockdown, because of racial tensions. Mm -hmm. And in the last eight years, uh, believe it or not, um, student anxiety and depression has doubled in just in the last eight years since 2012. So the mental health is really poor on campuses right now. More than 60% of college students say they report overwhelming anxiety and um, I would say suicidal ideation and severe depression has doubled since 2012. So I really wanted to take this specifically into a college environment to see how we could help in a very effective group setting help cure some of these ills or give students really practical tools. And I knew that sky breath meditation was so phenomenal for anxiety and depression. So that's what we've done. We've, yeah. we've made program um, based on the art of living programs that that combine a, a deep practice of sky breath meditation and then social connection also because 
young people, I mean, meditation is great, but if they don't take it into their real life when they're dealing with real people, it doesn't uh, become such a practical thing. So we combine it with social connection and emotional intelligence skills. What goes into the practice itself? And I mean, is it different than, than a meditation? Oh, yes, it's entirely different. Um, I just taught a group of faculty and staff at Texas A&M a few months back, and one of the deans came in, and this dean um, at Texas A&M, his son is a meditation teacher. And he walked into my class saying, Annalise, I don't meditate, and I mm. can't meditate because my son has been trying to teach me this for 10 years. <laughs> right. And I said, well, why don't you just try this breath work? It's entirely different. So, uh, you know, our class is three days long, a couple hours for three days. And by the third day, he said, okay, Annalise, you're right. I am getting into these deep states of meditation just by doing the breath work, and I'm not struggling with my mind. So I think uh, we all probably know this, that you cannot talk yourself out of a negative emotion. It's very difficult to tell your mind don't be anxious or calm down, right? It's the worst thing someone can tell you, hey, calm down, you know, or don't be depressed. The more you resist negative emotions in the mind, often the more they persist. Hmm. But the breath work gives us a way into the autonomic nervous system and it directly affects the physiology. And it, it takes us from the sympathetic mode of the nervous system, which is fight or flight. And a lot of times we're in fight or flight which is supposed to be used to run away from a tiger or something, right, that, to rev up your system. But just because of stressful circumstances and the way our mind is reacting, most of us are living in fight or flight mode, which is very, very stressful and harmful for our nervous system. Mm. So the breath automatically puts you into parasympathetic mode. Very quickly it does it within the first session. And that trains your system to be in rest and digest mode, which brings calm and focus. And that's just, that's a better way to do our work. It's also a better way to socialize when we have calm and focus. And I would say it works automatically. You only have to be able to breathe. Yeah. No, that's that's well said. I mean, rest and digest. And it makes me think not only how that would be useful for a free diver, but Stieg, I mean, you have worked with Navy SEALs. You've worked with vets who are dealing with PTSD. So I, I have a feeling you've been seeing certain mental health benefits from this type of breath work as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I donated in 2014 uh, a workshop uh, not so far from you. This was in San Diego, so not beautiful Santa Barbara, but San Diego, in a beautiful hotel called La Valencia, right next to the Pacific Ocean. And I invited veterans, and we saw extraordinary uh, uh, transformation in one or two days. People that had lost their record of, of childhood memories, that had nightmares, all that changed literally overnight. So in the PTSD program, we try to bring people to a, an acceptance of where they are, draw, uh, uh, draw a line in the sand and say the past is the past. You cannot change it. The best you can do is have a narrative, a new positive way of looking at what happened and how you can use this to your best abilities. Kind of like we just heard here, you had states fear, you have some challenges in your life, but then you unlock like the mystery of what it is and you find a very good tool and you want to teach that to others. So we go along with a narrative. We give them social uh, assignments, we call them missions because it's for military people, um, but little assignments, homework, you could call it, that they should do online every week. Uh, maybe have a barbecue at home, maybe take up a childhood hobby or a new hobby, something you're passionate about. Right. So, and then including different body stretches and breathing that makes it automatic so they can do it every day on the train, in the taxi, uh, at work, uh, at home, and so forth. So we we like we just heard before we're changing the stress system and this overloaded uh, part of the autonomous uh, autonomous nervous system that is uh, building up adrenaline and and cortisol and basically fatigue and wearing you down very harmful and deadly in the end but on the contrary you can teach people quite easily um, to go into uh, rest and digest. If you learn to use slow exhale, the one-two breathing is the best tool I know. So exhaling the double time uh, that you inhale and inhaling with the, with the nose. Then a slight pause. The pause is very important in any breath work. And then exhaling nice and calmly with a soft face, a soft jaw, mm -hmm. soft shoulders. And then exhale about double the amount of time. Slight pause again. So the breath is divided into four phases. 
And within two or three breaths, you activate the vagus nerve, the 10th cranial nerve that runs from your brainstem, from the control center of your breathing uh, system and your heart rate, and, you, and it sends threats into your heart. So you get an intimate connection, direct dialogue, a, a conversation with your heart, right. literally, physiologically, not just kind of metaphorically mumbo jumbo. And you also connect with your lungs and all of your internal organs that are, of course, related to digestion and all the hormonal production. So when you do this kind of breathing, like we heard before, you completely change your physiology in a second. Yeah. And that is where the change comes. After days, after weeks, you create a new, uh, a better version of yourself. Annalise, I'll let you jump in here. We, we heard a little bit there about some actual um, breath techniques there. And, and I want to get your thoughts on kind of how, how you approach this, uh, just kind of the, the mechanics of it. When you sit with college students or you sit with teachers, what, what, is, what do those sessions look like and feel like? With college students, we have a three-day program where um, it's three hours a day. And we've been doing it on Zoom, believe it or not. All of our classes now are on Zoom. And we do a little bit of social connection so they feel comfortable. And then we dive into sky breath meditation. And I would say some of them are so fatigued that they uh, sleep really deeply after the first session because suddenly their stress response system is calmed down so much. And by the third day, the energy, the life force energy comes up in their system. So they're feeling more focused, more calm, more alert. And what I love about it is it's such an easy, accessible technique that they end up practicing every day. I like mm. to make people lifelong practitioners. And what are some of the mechanics of it? I mean, what, what, what does this look like? Can you give us a few tips? Yeah. So I would say one easy one you could start with at home is is a like a kind of preliminary technique easy enough to practice even if you're super stressed out um it's called straw breath you just sit comfortably with your spine straight you should always do these sitting not standing i think it's much better sitting and you take a long deep breath in through the nose and you hold the breath in for a moment and then you breathe out through the mouth as if you're breathing out through a tiny straw as small as a coffee straw you make the tiniest opening in the mouth and breathe out slowly so in the breath out, you extend the breath to at least twice as long as the inhalation. And you repeat that for three or four minutes, breathing in long, deep breaths through the nose and holding the breath for a moment and then breathing out very slow, steady, very, very, very slow out through the mouth. Even just that simple technique for a few minutes lowers blood pressure and it can counter anxiety and, and racing thoughts. So that's a great practice you can really take with you anywhere. Stieg, I, I want to ask you a similar question. Practices at home um, that, that we can kind of just bring with us throughout the day. And if you could tell us specifically, do they, do they include sitting or lying down, um, body positions? What, what would you tell our listeners? Uh, the, the basic thing is that I always say breathing is king. So you always should lead with breathing, whether you relax, go into relaxation, whether it's high performance, whether it's clarity or focus at work, uh, better decision making start with breathing and then let go from there. So as an example would be you open your arms, for example, an exercise called albatross, you open your eyes like a bird. And of course you inhale when you take your arms back, that, that's obvious, it kind of goes with the movement, right? So you open, you take in the breath, you take in the energy. And then again, a slight pause, cause you need that little pause between in and exhale. And then you push your wings forward again. And you can do that with various speeds. And the breathing is, is, is leading and then the movement is following. But this very factual thing or basic thing is a stranger. It's unknown to most people. They don't even walk or run in a proper relationship to their uh, breathing rhythm. So movement with breath is wonderful. It should only take five minutes. When you start to go into 20-minute program, 30-minute program, 50-minute program, nobody's going to do it. It is too much. Then if you feel the effect and you want to do it, of course, you can do 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 40 minutes. You feel better. I would say 40 minutes is about an optimum. It's not too little to calm down, to do your workout and to calm down again and do some visualization, some imagery where you don't move your body and you have the stillness and the breath flowing in you. And about 30, 40 minutes is a good goal. Focus on the exhale. Ah, <sighs> Letting go, you know like the, the sigh. We all have this in all cultures, across all religions, you know, a sigh is a sigh. 
<sighs> the relief and the release of the body and the, the, the muscular tension. And the breath is again leading like a king. You know, it's taking the lead. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would say people should do. Don't get obsessed about if you're standing or sitting or even lying down. Um, just do what feels natural to you and then experiment and, and stay with your routine for about a week. So you start to feel, you know, you start to get the hang of it. And then you change after a while to, to get more curious. And of course, you can do some, some more advanced breathing stuff and Uriana Banda lifting the diaphragm, getting a very flexible diaphragm because that's the breathing muscle, right? So many people have a very tense and um, unflexible diaphragm. And that's, that's not the best way to breathe because it is your pump that, that keeps your life energy flowing. Mm-hmm. So just starting from there. And, and in itself, it's crazy that, you know, the medical world hasn't woken up yet. Or, you know, I come from this medical background. My brother is a head surgeon as well. And I work with a lot of doctors. My, my, my sister is a, a nurse. I'm, I'm not angry with these people. I'm just sad to see that it's such an uphill climb. It's like a Sisyphus job, you know, pushing up that rock. Obviously, breathing is the key to life. So why not use it more in in uh, lowering the doses of, of painkillers, rehabilitating people faster? Once you're in the rest and digest, your body has time to recover faster. You can reduce recovery time from operations, from mental disorders and stress and all this that we've discussed earlier. So I just hope and, 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 and suggest that people at home just start by whatever technique and start by about five minutes a day. And you have all these pauses. You know, I call it the pause, or the break in the break. When you have a break at work, do some breath, three breath. You know, when you're going to send this angry email, ah, stop, you know, and think and breathe for a second and then send that email. Okay. So use it uh, proactively in your everyday work. You don't have to be a breath master. Just start, you know, playing with it. Right. That's, that's my best advice. Well, Stieg Severinsen is a freediver and four-time freediving world champion. He's the founder of Breathology and the author of Breathology, The Art of Conscious Breathing. Stieg, thanks for the time. We appreciate it. You're most welcome. And Annalise Richmond is director of Sky Campus Happiness Program and the director of teacher training for the Art of Living Foundation. Thanks for joining us as well. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jonathan. It was great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all for today. You've been listening to Life Examined on KCRW. The show is produced by Andrea Brody with digital support from Jennifer Wolf. You can learn more about the show at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined and download the show wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and we'll see you next week.